This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder, Episode 3. What it's like to be a witness in a murder trial. And the murder suspect is... Your parent. Oh boy. That's scary. Here we go, right after this. So, Brenda. Yes, Collier. So, I have some interesting news. You do? Yes. So, the streaming platform Discovery Plus is now showing a murder in Mansfield 24-7 for your streaming pleasure. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? It is very cool. And do you know how I found out about this? How did you find out? I did not get a call from Discovery Plus telling me, hey, your documentary is on Discovery Plus. I got an Instagram message from a wonderful woman named Kika in the Netherlands. I think they call that a DM. All right. So from the Grams, she says, Dear Collier, I just finished watching your documentary on Discovery Plus. Seeing you on the witness stand broke my heart. How did you find the courage to testify against your father? Were you scared? He seemed like such a monster to do what he did. I pray that you have finally found peace. Love and light, Kika from the Netherlands. That is pretty cool. All the way from the Netherlands. Wow. It's amazing, you know, what reach these stories have and how they touch other people's lives. And I love hearing from people. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's one of the really cool things in doing a documentary like that or even doing a podcast like this is that you do have this ability to reach a global audience now. They can listen to it anytime they want or watch it anytime they want. So it's cool. That's always one of the rewarding things. Now, I've been to the Netherlands. We had our second screening at the IDFA Documentary Film Festival, which is like the largest in the world. It goes on for like two and a half weeks in the Netherlands. It is so cool. I had... Probably some of the most fun times I've ever had in my life in Amsterdam. Not for reasons that you're probably thinking of. They had nothing to do with the red light district or <laughs> marijuana shops. <laughs> but I had a lot of fun. Nice. A lot of fun. We, I think we screened like four times while we were there. It was really cool. Wow. So Kika had asked about me being a, on the witness stand. I get this question a lot when I was touring around with the documentary. And a lot of people seem to be confused because they don't understand why the prosecution, quote unquote, made me testify against my father. What people don't seem to understand, why would they, is that I chose to testify against my father. There was no way that I was going to not testify against my father because I knew what I heard. I knew what the truth was. And I knew that that what he did was wrong. And it was the only way that I could really retaliate, if you will. Right. So... Yeah, there was like no other option. I mean, there, <laughs> like, come hell or high water, as they say, I would, there would be no way that I wouldn't right? testify. Well, and the cool thing is, if you really think about it, the only person that could have really stopped you 
from testifying would have been your father, but at that point, he had no right and no control over you. So where most yeah. parents are the ones to either say you can or not to testify in a court, usually in this situation, he couldn't stop you, which was great. And you needed to, you know, speak your truth. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, is that I had no family left. Let's just keep it real. My mother's side of the family didn't really want to have anything to do with me. My father's side of the family didn't really want to have anything to do with me. And I was all alone. <laughs> and I was in a foster care home with people that I don't think particularly cared for me. I think they just wanted to have me there because of my sister, because they wanted custody of my sister. And that's the truth. That's a horrible way to feel, too, being as young as you were. What a crappy place to be and have to totally crappy roll place with to it. Be. Yeah. Totally crappy place to be. But I think at that time, and I think when you are in that situation, you, <laughs> your options are pretty limited. Yeah. And the only thing that I could do was be proactive and pursue telling the truth as I knew it and honoring my mother that way. I knew what happened. I knew what I heard. And I wanted to tell the story. And there was a lot of, let me backtrack a little bit. I watched recently American Crime Story, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Oh, yeah. It was interesting. And I remember the case. It kind of almost overlapped with my life in a lot of ways. But I remember the, the jury being sequestered, if you will, or quarantined in the hotels and not being able to watch the television and things like that. That is, in a lot of ways, how I was treated. I was not allowed to see a newspaper, watch TV, anything like that, because it was constant news every single day. I think there was probably an article in the paper, and that's what it was. And that wasn't because you were going to be a witness. It was because they were trying to shield you from this. But you're like, listen, people, I already know all of this. And you probably would have rather have seen the news and seen what was going on because you needed to know what was happening. And I think that would have been helpful to you rather than feeling like you were just being, you know, kept away from it. Yeah, it was. And also my contact was very limited with my friends at the time. And they were all instructed, you can't talk to them about this and that. And <laughs> And when you're in a small town and this is like the biggest thing going on in town and everyone knows who you are, it it's really hard to not talk about it with anyone. Right. But I was shielded away from a lot of it, but I was also very isolated and not having a caring family or foster care situation, which was good for me. It was... <laughs> it was rough. It was rough, to say the least. And it I, was rough. I had to wonder, too, like... When you were out in public, did people just stare at you when they realized that, oh, that's the kid? Oh, yeah. They would stare at me, and it, it, it was very, very awkward. You know, so I testify in the trial. It's a two and a half, I believe I testified for two and a half days. And once my father was convicted, and so everything is over, right? And then I'm right. going back to, oh, back to life now, which was not. <laughs> but yes, being out in public, people would come up to me, strangers, all the time. And I would, I wanted to be very, I wanted in a lot of ways to answer their questions. And because I knew that they, even at my young age, I knew that they were also going through something and they felt so connected with me. So I was right. trying to be really respectful of that because I figured that my mother, well, I knew my mother would want me to, to honor that and respect that, that those people are also dealing with something, whether they were dealing with the fact they felt such grief for my mother and having my mother, you know, brutally murdered or that my father was their physician and they've lost their physician or they had, they believed he was innocent. 
And they were still coping with the fact that they feel an innocent man went to jail. It wasn't just like everybody was like, oh, he's bad. My father had a tremendous amount of support because he was such a good doctor from a lot of the community that were his patients. And I I believe the prosecutor, James Mayer Jr., said in, I want to say forensic files episode or something like that, that they said one in every five or ten patients in Richland County were seen by my father. And there was more than 10 10 doctors there. So he had a a very large group of patients and he had a very large practice as a single physician. So, yeah, there were a lot of people connected to it. So I would have people that even to this day, even after the film, I remember somebody sent me a message. This was probably 2018. Again, spoiler alert, in the film, I confront my father about the murder. And my father is a, what I believe is a sociopath and a psychopath. And he just completely denies it, flat out denies it. So this gentleman who had seen it, he wrote me a message on Facebook. He said, I'm so glad that you got to sit down with your father and hear his side of the story. And you guys were able to come to a resolution about that. And you understand his side of the story now. Are like, you, excuse me, what? Are you watching this? Did you watch the same film that I made? Because <laughs> that's not what happened. Yeah. Because I say to my father, I believe that you believe that. Right. And I say, and that's my answer. Because he does believe his own story. And granted, if I was sitting in a prison cell for, at that time, 26, 27 years now, mm-hmm. probably would convince myself that the sky was pink. Right. Y- you could convince yourself of anything. Of anything. Being... I think. Yes. Locked up that long. The power of the human mind. You know, I always believe, and I've said this for a long time, is that when we go through such trauma, and let's face it, yes, there was trauma inflicted on myself, my family, friends. The You know, obviously the, the film deals with the ancillary victims, the repercussions of violence on communities and this, that, and the other, right? However, there's also a trauma that's inflicted on the person who commits the murder because you're doing something that is so violently aggressive. And it's, I almost feel that there's a lot of times when you hear about these cases in the newspaper or newspaper online or or on the news, whatever, right? And you hear about cases where somebody was shot to death. Somebody was shot, Mm -hmm. right? Couple gets in an argument, killed his wife or she killed her husband or another person killed another person, a robber, whatever it is. Well, they were shot. Well, that to me feels like, you know, it's horrific. It's mm-hmm. so sad and tragic that this happened, that another person's life was taken, that another person felt the need to take another person's life for nothing, really. Right. However, you shot them with a gun. It's an inanimate object. You shot them. You're not close. Up, you're far away or you're far enough away. My father put a plastic bag over my mother's head and suffocated her while he smashed the back of her skull in. It's a whole different ballgame. Wow. It's like stabbing somebody when you stab somebody. That's an intimate Yeah, it's very up killing. close and personal. When you strangle somebody, then you're watching the air. You're literally sucking the life out of them. Mm-hmm. That's some traumatic stuff going on. That's that's really, you're, you're committed. And I think that with something like that, that is so traumatic to watch or to witness as the person who's committing the action, right, against the person you're watching them die at your hands. I think that you, your part of your brain can just black that out. I remember that somebody was talking about the movie the other day, Meet Joe Black with Brad Pitt and uh, was it Claire Forlani? Right. 
And they meet and they have this romantic encounter. She's all smitten. He's all smitten. And then he, she turns around and he walks out into the street and gets hit by the bus, right? Right. And then he comes back and he does, has no recollection of her, but she's like, wait a minute, hold on. And I can't really remember how the movie ends or whatever. But the fact is that I always think about that scene because that's what it must be like when you commit something so heinous that you just black it out. It's like getting hit by a bus. You just don't remember. We as a natural sort of self-defense mechanism that's ingrained into our physiological makeup. Right. We just tune things out. We're like, okay, just black out. Blah, blah, blah. Don't remember that. Didn't happen. So I don't know where I was really going with that, but we were discussing the different types of murder. Right. And I just think that when it gets... So my father saying that he you know, didn't do it or he's got all these excuses and stories, I think that when you sit in that prison cell for 27 years... You convince yourself beyond your natural defense mechanisms. I think it's almost another defense, another layer of that defense mechanism where you, in order to survive and live another day, you have to treat it just like that. Right. Well, one of the questions that I had for you, too, kind of taking it back a step, is did people actually come up to you on the street to try to, like, defend your dad? Oh, Absolutely. What would they say? Absolutely. They would say, you know, your father couldn't have done that. You know, he was helped by other people or, you know, that that the Lieutenant Messmore framed him and the police department framed him. They're corrupt. So anyways, there is a book that was written by a guy named Martin Yant and it was called Rotten to the Core. The pun is, is that Richland County and Mansfield in particular was in Johnny Appleseed country. So mm-hmm. rotten to the core, uh-huh. apples, appleseeds. I ha, get ha, it. Ha. Yeah. And he wrote a second book too. And a friend, a really good friend of mine, Ardeth Nash, read this book and said, you should read it. But there was a lot of police corruption and things brought up that was in Richland County. Now, obviously, I feel that there was no corruption as far as police corruption and framing of my father. Right. But my father still uses that to this day, that he was framed, he was set up, he was this, he was that. He doesn't say that in the film. But that is definitely his sort of belief still because, and we'll talk about this on another episode, but I have, well, my stalker has come back around. (laughs) Wonderful stalker. Mm, Fun. And contacted my father and then sent me their correspondence, which I will read on another episode of the podcast, which is super fun. We'll discuss true crime, group, <laughs> true crime true groupies. True crime groupies. Oh, and stalkers. It's a lot of fun. Trust me. Anyways, he, uh, you know, he's always engaged in these conspiracy theories. And I have, you know, I as, as you saw, I recently just came in. I have the entire collection that I have sourced of all of my father's letters now. Yes. They were scattered about between California and Ohio and other places, and I've now collected all of them. So we will be reading those on this podcast. And there is a large container of them. So there is a large container. There's probably like four or 500 of them. And I have a bunch that I have not even opened, too. Oh, wow. So that's going to be super exciting. So once we get the video portion of this podcast up, I will be opening these letters on camera for the first time, and we'll read them. And some of them might be kind of boring, but some of them might be really good, too. My father liked to indulge in conspiracy theories on how he was framed and set up and things of that nature. So <laughs> I love that framed and set up. Let me see. I buried the body in the basement of the new house I bought from my mistress and somehow the body magically got there. Magically. Magically. It's like teleportation 
but not. Yes. Yeah, so he has all kinds of interesting theories about that that he has expounded upon over the years in his letters. So I can't wait to dive into those. Back to what I was saying is when there's books like this one that was called Rotten to the Core, which did talk about corruption in Richland County and things of that nature, when you are someone who is grabbing for straws, you will latch on to anything. So he, I remember him sending me I don't know if he sent me the book. He may have sent me the book, but he told me to read it. And he's like, you need to read it. And granted, maybe these things happened, but they didn't happen to him. No. <laughs> but you try to grab onto like, we'll see if it happened to them. It happened to me too. And it's like, and what, what would have been the reasoning for anybody in the police department to frame him? What? He couldn't fit them into his schedule to be seen for a uh, exa- medical exactly. appointment they, and were, they, were, they were jealous they were right. jealous because he was having but i mean i, I remember him discussing these things with me of that yeah he had all these conspiracy they were envious of his money or this that whatever it was it, it just was and you know uh, it was crazy yeah he's i mean if he if a 12 year old boy <laughs> can figure this out and put the pieces together I just don't understand how people can think that this was made up. You're like, hello, heard it, saw it, uh, saw pictures of the house where the body was buried. I mean, you put, you know, A plus B, you know, plus C equals D together. It was like, you know, you did it and you figured it out. And it's like no one had time to frame anybody for anything. And and here's the thing that that. Yes. What you say. Absolutely. But here's the thing that goes hand in hand with sociopathy. Sociopathy and narcissism are like one in the same. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who is a narcissist is a sociopath to the degree that my father is. You know, that's a special that's that's like the world heavyweight champion right there. Right. But narcissism is a big part of sociopathy. So what they do, and this is what I've discovered over the 30 years of dealing with my father since he was convicted and dealing with my father pre-conviction, even though I was a young child, but I start remembering the stories and the incidents that's happened before when I was younger. And then as an adult, as I come into my own, I begin to process these things. And you see these, these things come into play with the narcissism. And I was telling somebody recently what I've discovered with my father and with narcissism going in hand in hand with sociopathy is that what they do is they will hang on to these little nuanced details that really have nothing to do with the price of tea in China. Right. <laughs> but they make them into such a big deal. For example, they would say, well, police say, say that she was murdered at 3.15 a.m. on December 31st, 1989. And he goes, well, nope. She was murdered at the the autopsy says she was murdered at four thirty a.m. So therefore, that that discredits it as if that just completely negates the fact that she was killed by him or whatever. You know, it's the grabbing for straws. But in their mind, mm-hmm. if you don't have every single detail correct, then you're not right. That's how they justify it. Mm-hmm. They don't go, oh well, yeah, four thirty is close to fit three fifteen on the same day. I remember a big point of contention in the media and with my father was the weight of my mother's body mm-hmm. and her eye color. Now, my mother had crystal clear blue eyes, like myself. I get my, I have my mother's eyes. The body, and when I had seen the pictures, as you see in the film, her right. eyes were brown. Now, 
that probably occurs from the rigor mortis process. Right. You know, she was essentially a cadaver for 25 days mm-hmm. in, you know, makeshift grave of fresh concrete, right? That tends to take the shine out of your eyes, I think. Tends to take the glean out of one's eyes, yes. I think so. But I remember him contesting the autopsy. Oh, that can't be her body because she had blue eyes, not brown. I remember them asking me how much did my mother weigh. Now, my mother never would have told me her real weight anyways. Right. But I think I had guessed, and I had to look over my shoulder even though I know she was dead, but just in case she was there, I said, (laughs) maybe 125 pounds. And I think her weight was like 150 or something. Also, again, a body is in a grave and is probably retaining water. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> Because yes. it's buried in water and all these things. So when they put on a scale, they don't go, well, just considering. I mean, I'm sure, you know, and we're also talking about forensicology, what, 32 years ago now? Being that we're in 2021, this is 1990, 1990 mm-hmm. so 21 year, 31 years ago. I'm sure things have advanced. But at that time, they're not going to go, oh, well, what was her weight? Or they're just going to go, oh, well, of course, it's going to gain water weight. But he would use these things. I believe he used them in his appeal. And we'll get into his appeal in another episode and discuss as we're talking about other cases. But he would use these little subtle nuances to say, well, see, I'm innocent because, oh, the body weight was off or, oh, the eye color was off or, oh, never mind, forget the fact that there's a body buried in a house that you own. That you put (laughs) the floor in. That you put the floor in, that you asked about lowering the basement floor and that you asked about all these things and that you had your mistress, Sherry Campbell, sign a document to purchase the house N. Sherry Boyle, because my mother's names were initials were NSB. So -hmm. she signed N. Sherry Boyle, even though she wasn't married to my father. Right. And this is in court. I'm not making this up. This isn't a thing of fantasy. This is documented Mm -hmm. in a court of law per her testimony. Sign the document. N. Period. Sherry Boyle. So you are having somebody portray that you are actually, this is your wife, and you're saying it can't be her because the eye color's off. That's right. what they do. They just they they hang on to these little details to try to refute any or 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 shirk off the blame or guilt or anything because oh well you didn't get your detail right so therefore I must be innocent. <laughs> it's it's absolutely insane. That is insane. And when I saw in Murder in Mansfield when they were pulling her out of the floor, I could tell it was her. And I mean, just her hair, her her build. I mean, I didn't need to see her eyes. I didn't need to, you know, weigh her. It just struck me that, oh, my God, this is her. So if I'm thinking that, you know, yeah, I'm sure everyone else that saw it as well would agree, looking at pictures of her and then seeing her pulled out of the floor, there it was unmistakable. So, I mean, he can try to grasp at any little thing to hang on, but come on. I mean... You don't you don't get much more spot on than that. Yeah. And it just got, you know, even crazier and crazier in the appeals process, which we'll, we'll get into in other episodes, exactly how this this develops. And as I start to really dive through these letters that I haven't looked at in geez, years and years, we will uncover, I'm sure, some more sort of juicy facts and alternate facts and Conspiracy theories and one-armed man and (laughs) aliens. Because I remember, I think for the first, at least the first 10 years of correspondence with my father, he had just one theory after another, after another, after another. Just because people do shady things Hmm. or whatever. And again, I'm not discounting, you know, this gentleman, Martin Yant's book or his truth or 
any allegations of corruption. I can't speak to those. I have no idea. But I will say this. Didn't happen in my father's case. <laughs> no. Didn't happen at all. But it's like any of these little excuses. And you, but you see this. You see this in cases all the time. They look for these little technicalities to get people off. I mean, there was a very big case. If it don't fit, you got to quit, right? Mm-hmm. And you see these things that allow these people to go free. And it's, it's mind-numbing. It really is. And it, and it really, and it really, really breaks your heart for the people that are really out for justice. And they don't get it because of just these loopholes that these, these lawyers will just find. I mean, I'm just so not a lawyer fan. <laughs> I'm so not a fan of lawyers. You know, sometimes you do have, you, you have good ones, obviously. James Mayer Jr., Jerry Alt, great lawyers, great police officers, David Messmore and the Mansfield Police Department did a great, fantastic job in this case. I like to think that they are the rule, not the exception, but they all did a very fine job. And that's, you know, it's good to hear and it's good to point out the good ones yeah. when you when you run across them, for sure, because all we do hear about yeah, are the bad now. ones yeah. and the negative. And it is nice to, you know, talk about something in a positive light, even when we're discussing a, you know, a subject as heinous as this. But <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's good to not think that all law enforcement or lawyers are out to get you. No, that's very true. You know, there are. I mean, sure, there are exceptions, yeah. not rules, but I tend to be a little bit more altruistic than others. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. I think you do. I think you yeah. do. I think you have to look at things like that. So to all of our listeners, thank you so much for sticking around. We are getting on a much better schedule for releasing these episodes, by the way. Yes. Uh, I have just been on a television show that I've been shooting which is a house renovation show. And it's very far away from Los Angeles, so I have to get up very early and work very long days. Good times, good times. But our goal is to try to make sure- Every Monday. Every Monday, that is the goal. That's what I'm pushing for. Moving past Murder Mondays, MPM Monday. Oh, I like that. I like that. Hashtag MPM Mondays. MPM Mondays. That's what we're going for. And we are, as we get everything settled, moving into our new podcast studio where we'll have video. So you will see this on YouTube very soon as well. Hopefully in the next, like, within the next two weeks. But if you have a case that has been interesting you- and or even an unsolved case, cold case, or you just want to reach out to us, please, please do. You can email us at movingpastmurder at gmail.com. Uh, you can also comment and please comment, like, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. For sure. And also, we'd like to do a shout out to... The to... Badass Babes of Entertainment yes. podcast, yes, which I have been on, and you Brenda have. is also a part of. Yes, and it's a lot of fun. We talk about cool industry stuff and lifting up women in the entertainment industry. And in fact, um, Collier's episode that I reran for him on our channel, uh, we dedicated to his mother, Noreen, who yes. is the ultimate badass babe because she raised an amazing son oh thank you Had to she say did all right very important. i was very lucky yes she and really... in celebration of international women's month we want to celebrate our badass babes of entertainment badass babes of entertainment brenda fisher jacqueline reynolds yes. and of course my mother doreen schmidt boyle may she rest in peace i'm collier landry and i'm brenda fisher this has been moving past murder thanks y'all mm-hmm.
For more information, please visit movingpastmurder.com or mpmpodcast.com. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Hulu, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment.